Hey there folks, it's me, Michael Bach, your Diversity Dude, and this is Talking to Canadians. The lived experience of people has a tremendous impact on the work they do, what they study, and how they live their lives. It's because of my lived experience that I do what I do today. People of color, indigenous, and LGBTQ2 plus folks are particularly impacted by this, and sometimes the results are incredibly moving. Today, I talked to Michael Chutzkoff, a young indigenous man that lives and studies in British Columbia. Michael identifies as gay and went to school in a very anti-gay environment. What he experienced growing up has shaped him and guided him to study psychology and Aboriginal affairs. Here's my conversation with Michael Chuskoff. Michael Chuskoff, welcome to Talking to Canadians. Hi, thanks for having me. Pleasure. So you, Michael, have a, a passion for LGBTQ causes, and you work as an Aboriginal support worker in BC. Let's talk about it. Let's do it. Great. So let's start with a, a bit of a walk through your early life, which I realize you're 22, right? That, yeah, I'm 22. Yeah, okay. So it's not that long a life. But let's, you know, give me a bit of a, a sense of of who is Michael Chutzkoff? Uh, well, I was just your average run of the middle kid. Um, nothing too exciting. Uh, I grew up playing hockey, lacrosse, tennis, um, baseball, basically any kind of sport. If I wanted to do it, I was out there doing it. Um, I absolutely loved doing that kind of stuff as a kid. Um, I was, yeah, I don't know much past that. I just yeah, I enjoyed being a kid. Okay. And, but you went to school, I understand, in a, in a pretty uh, homophobic environment? That's correct. I uh, went to a very conservative uh, Christian-based private school. Um, that wasn't so fun. I was the black sheep uh, since kindergarten, because it was a kindergarten to grade 12 uh, school. So basically since day one, I was the outcast and I was the one that liked to get bullied a lot. So Right. And yeah. and you uh, were you out in kindergarten? <laughs> definitely not. No. The environment I was in um, definitely did not allow any kind of um, any kind of identity that was out of the norm, which was you know the very cisgendered heteronormative lifestyle that right. they would say. So definitely not a good um, environment for somebody like me. Yeah, yeah. And and how do you feel like that experience shaped you and to who you are today? it put me through a lot of hardship and it made me really appreciate who I am even more once that experience was done. Um, I probably hit some of the lowest points in my life in my early adolescence, but I'm very grateful for the experiences that I ended up going through because it made me who I am today. Sure. Yeah. It, it sort of strengthens, strengthens you, right? Like you. Yeah. It forced me to grow up a lot faster than your typical kid. Yeah. And, and as a result, you have done quite a bit of volunteering work uh, with causes aimed at both the LGBTQ communities as well as indigenous communities. You know, what sort of inspired that? Was it growing up as a closeted queer kid or, or, or talk to me about that? Well, I, I'll speak to my um, my queer part first. Is for me growing up in not only a very you know private conservative Christian school, but also growing up in a city where there wasn't a lot of LGBTQ visibility. I wanted to do something to 
changed that. And also it was just a way for me to connect with other people who were like me because it wasn't until I was about 17 that I actually started to, you know, connect and hang out with people who were similar to me. And it was a very freeing moment. I just, you know, if I had to redo it, I would, would have reached out sooner to, you know, see that I actually had support in people who've gone through similar experiences like me. Yeah. It's a bit of a, a you know, a, I guess a misnomer, right? Like there's this belief that kids coming out today, uh, young people coming out today are, are, you know, everything's great. Everything is uh, hunky dory. You know, when I came out in 1986, um, it was a very different world. And the belief is that it's, it's changed. And I, I think it has changed, but there are still situations like yours where you're facing homophobia and transphobia in your school. You're, you're seeing that kind of abuse and it's, it's uh, not, everything is all rosy. Mm-hmm. And I think people need to be really mindful that just because there's more um, opportunities to access resources for people who are coming out, it still doesn't mean that their environments are inherently safer. Um, I know for me, just because, you know, I'm younger and times have changed, um, for me growing up in an environment where I had to basically listen to almost on a weekly basis that homosexuality is wrong, that, you know, this big part of who you are is you're going to go to hell. And I heard such nasty things. And I don't know if it's because, because, you know, me not being out because I literally could have been expelled from my school. Um, I don't know if people were realizing the impact of their words, but it, it, it definitely affected me and made me have a really low self of or sense of self worth. Sure. Yeah. It can absolutely have that impact. What about uh, your indigeneity, your indigenous identity? So for me, um, it was something that I didn't find out until I was a little older. Um, that you were indigenous. Which to me, I thought, yeah. So to me, I thought it was such a, a joyous moment because ever since I was a little kid, I always felt the connection to culture. Anytime I would, you know, learn about it from what, you know, kind of half-baked learning exercises we would have because the curriculum wasn't exactly um, conducive to learning uh, proper Indigenous um, culture, stuff like that. But so when I found out, I was like, this is perfect. Like, this is my chance to connect to something. But that also made me the only Indigenous kid at my school, which painted an even bigger target on my back um one thing that still sticks with me to this day is you know i was talking to one of my friends and they said well you're just doing it for the money and i said what do you mean because at that time i had no you know prior knowledge of what it means to be indigenous or anything like the indian act or the discrimination that indigenous people faced and i said no i'm not doing it for the money i don't know what you mean and he said i think it's ridiculous that you know we're paying indigenous people for stuff that we did 200 years ago and at that time, I didn't know how to respond. And I felt really shameful, right? How do you, like, I'm so new to something that I was so excited to be a part of. But if that's what I was, if that was the reaction I was going to face, well, you know, what's the point in being proud of that? So for a really long time, I would just tell people I was mixed race. Um, you know, I'm a very fair-skinned First Nations person. Um, my dad's side is not First Nations, but my mom is. So... You know, if people ask me to elaborate on what it meant to be mixed race, I would tell them, well, I'm part First Nations and, you know, I'm part European. So it, it, that really that really hurt. And, I mean, if I were to go back to that conversation now, I'd be able to stick up for myself a lot more from what I've learned. But that still doesn't change the fact that that comment still burned into my... Absolutely. 
Yeah. And, and as a young person, certainly you shouldn't have to be justifying an identity that y- you can't do anything about. It's not like you had a choice in the matter. And especially because the curriculum then, and because it was a private school, there was no real education on Indigenous culture or history or talking about um, residential schools, you know, the last one closing in 1996, or the 60 scoop, or the disproportionate amount of kids in care, even up to this day, or the certain social policies that are in place mm-hmm. that are extremely discriminatory. Like, I had none of that. And I, because the other kids didn't know that, I think that's where a lot of that um, misunderstanding and almost hatred came from, right? If we don't understand something, then we're going to hate it. It's part of human nature, right? That to protect the identity of the group, if somebody is different, you go after them because it yeah, keeps the sure. heat off of Gosh. your group. But you've really, I guess, it sort of in, it's empowered you to be doing the work you're doing now um, instead of, you know, going off and becoming a lawyer or a, whatever, you're really uh, contributing back to the community and making life better for other people who are coming from similar situations. And that's pretty impressive. Yeah. And for me, it's just, I don't want people to go through what I went through. Cause like I said earlier, mm. like I had to do some serious growing up um, to the point where I kind of miss being a kid and being a teenager sometimes because I was so focused on I need to get out of high school. I need to get out of this whole area. I need to find people who are like me. And I was so focused on that, that when I look back, I kind of miss some of the, some of the joys of being a teenager. Like, you know, like now I have to pay taxes and now I have to, you know, gas on my car and go to work and then make sure I'm, you know, my university grades are up and, you know, like there's so many things to be an adult that I kind of go, Oh, I miss being a kid. So you uh, you host an event called The Art of Coming Out. Can you talk to me about that? What was that about? Yeah, so this was um, something I did about two years ago at um, the university I go to, the University of the Fraser Valley. Um, it was an idea that came to me at three o'clock in the morning. I just woke up and it was like, you need to do this. I feel like sometimes I do some of my most brilliant thinking mm-hmm. when I just wake up in the middle of the night and can't sleep after it because my my mind just takes it and runs. Um, so basically what it was is it was an event to kind of share a little bit about my story and my experiences. So what it meant to be queer in, you know, the Bible Belt and, uh, you know, navigating that path, um, you know, the do's, the do's and don'ts of coming out if you feel safe. And I just wanted people to, A, hear that, A, it gets better. I know that's really cheesy and you hear it all the time in the LGBTQ plus community. Um, but I really wanted just to have people be aware, not so much, you know, just the LGBTQ people that attended, but also for allies or people who just had no idea what it means to, you know, come over this obstacle. And I think one of the biggest things I also talked about is, you know, the first time you come out, it's a huge deal and it's stressful. And I remember like my heart was racing. I was sweating, you know, I was on the verge of a mental breakdown and I thought, okay, perfect. I did it. I'm out. But then I quickly realized, well, I have to come out for the rest of my life, whether it's a new job, a new classroom, a new school, new people in my community, like, but it just gets easier. But you do have to do it over and over and over. It's not, it's not a one-off sadly. Mm-hmm. Um, no, 
no. But if you can overcome the first time, um, you can do, you can keep doing it. It's a little easier. And I think for me too, the other biggest thing I wanted people to take away from that event is, you know, just because it's called the art of coming out and people learning like the do's and don'ts of coming out, I wanted people just to know that you don't have to come out if you're not ready. I think um, sometimes in the community, we put a lot of pressure on people who are, you know, in the closet and say, well, you have to come out, otherwise you're not going to enjoy yourself. Well, that's great and all, but a lot of people aren't in environments where they're safe. There's a lot of pressure on people to come out, isn't there? That's a huge part. Yeah, absolutely. And why, you know, why do you think personally coming out is important? I think coming out to me is so important because it's a way to free yourself from, you know, your, from yourself. Uh, for me, I faced a lot of internalized homophobia. Like I hated myself. I was like, this is no, like, you don't need this in your life. Like, you know, you, 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 you play sports and like, not just any sports, but you play like the really rough and tough, like lacrosse and hockey, you have bruises, you hurt people. Like that's, that's not what it, you know, that doesn't, in my mind, I thought that doesn't make sense with being queer because I had such a small, narrow view on what it means to be queer that I thought, well, like, I'm not, I know I'm not always super feminine. I don't always talk a certain way. I don't look a certain way. I don't dress a certain way. But then I kind of realized after I came to terms with my sexuality that, like, who cares? Right? You don't have to subscribe to a certain look, a certain talk, right? Or any of that. Like, you just be yourself. And it's, it's very freeing. And I think that, you know, once you come out and you sure. feel comfortable with yourself, oh, it makes absolutely. life you can easier. Just, then you don't you can just be whoever that is. And the, you know, there are so many different identities within the queer community. Um, it, it's, there isn't this sort of cookie cutter approach to it. Right. Like, and you don't have to be married to one identity. You're allowed to explore. And, you know, I always like to describe it almost like you're wearing like a Velcro vest and you have like, all the different labels and you can stick it on and be like, you know, is this me? And then if it is, it is. And if not, you can take it off and put a different one on and see what works for you. But that doesn't mean that if you're, you know, gay, bisexual, pansexual, transgender, you have to subscribe to, you know, certain societal norms or expectations. You're allowed to be yourself and make it your own. So Michael, you're currently studying psychology and Aboriginal affairs. Uh, at the University of Fraser Valley, lovely Fraser Valley. What yes. do you want to be when you grow up? I hate that sense. What, <laughs> what are you? What are you aiming for? What's the? Or do you have a clue? <laughs> uh, I, uh, I, it keeps. You know what? I want to um, continue the path I am down right now. I think I've changed what I wanted to do about a million times, um, but I think what I'm looking forward to doing is becoming um, a certified counselor and being able to take, um, you know, my experiences of Indigenous cultures and practice and being able to blend that together to provide um, options for therapeutic healing within the Indigenous community. I think one of the things that we're missing the most right now is um, healing through our culture. I know out East there's some brilliant um, programs being offered and with the um, with indigenous cultures um, making a comeback this is a way to kind of help um, bridge those gaps 
Nice. And, and such a critically important thing to do, particularly around reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing I've, and that a lot of people I need to be more aware of is that with, you know, truth and reconciliation, the report being out and being out for a couple of years is this is a big thing in society and people need to be more aware that this isn't something that's going to be solved in a year or two. There's going to be a lot of processes and a lot of changes and a lot of people just need to be aware that, um, you know, Indigenous people have gone through a lot of discrimination and genocide. And yeah, it took, it took us 150 years to make the mess. It's going to take a little longer to clean yeah, it Yeah, well, and when you when you look at something like the residential schools, there's a thing called intergenerational trauma. Um, and there's studies that are showing now that um, trauma itself can be encoded into DNA and passed down to generations. So if a parent went to a residential school and the kid didn't, well, they're still going to feel the effects because it's literally coded into their DNA. So how do you break something that's been essentially snowballed down the generations? And not only that, but at the time of residential schools, um, people who survived, they weren't given access to you know, therapeutic resources. That wasn't such, There was no such thing. It was, here's a bottle or here's some drugs and you know, off you go. It's It was easier to control a population because you didn't want them to get better. You just wanted them to, you know, be complacent. It's, um, the, there's a, you know, the, the damage was significant and we have a, a lot of work in order to uh, repair that, uh, that damage. Yeah, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that it's, you know, it's not possible. It definitely is. Sure. It just yeah. means that there has to be a lot of hard work and a lot of dedication, not only from within the Indigenous community, but I think the biggest thing we need right now is more people to be allies. And I don't mean, you know, oh, well, I think Indigenous people deserve better. It, no, we need people in the trenches with us, not for us, um, helping us out and being the voice. Because the one thing that a lot of Indigenous people um, face is that not a lot of people want to listen but if even for me, like being a very fair skinned First Nations person, like a lot of people don't realize I'm First Nations, I get to use that privilege to go into spaces that a lot of Indigenous people traditionally aren't able to get into. Mm-hmm. And I'm able to use that power to say, hey, wait a second, like we need to be doing more and we not um, we can't just be, you know, ticking the boxes and making ourselves look good. We actually need to be getting um, down to the front lines and pushing for positive change. Because not only will it benefit the Indigenous community, but it benefits everybody. So uh, let, let's stay on that for a moment. Talk to me about your role as an Aboriginal support worker at school in Langley. Okay. Um, so I actually have a really cool job. Um, so I'm an Aboriginal support worker. Um, my job is tied to the district. So I'm part of a district program and basically I get hired into that and then they send you to various schools. I have a really cool school. It's called Vanguard Secondary. It's an alternate um, high school. Oh yeah. So I work with kids with um, with complex needs and these are the ones that traditionally haven't really found success in a um, traditional high school environment. So we have a lot of kids with various um, you know, behavioral needs, whether it's anxiety, whether it's um, depression, mental health, drug use, etc. Um, we're kind of the place for them. And the thing that a lot of these kids have faced is there's a lot of trauma in their life that hasn't been able to be fully addressed. So when they come to us, there's a lot that they, a lot of support that they need. And I think it's really cool that I can provide support to 
um, Indigenous students, particularly the ones that I work with that are First Nations, um, because they are urbanized Indigenous youth, and that's a very um, at-risk population, to not only be able to help them navigate their life, but help them find healing through culture. You say that that uh, urbanized Indigenous youth are are uh, at risk. You know, is there a, a a marked difference between those that are living on nation versus those that are urbanized? Well, what you can find um, for First Nations youth on a reserve or in a more rural community is that they have more opportunities to access their culture. Um, whereas if you have kids in an urbanized setting, a lot of them come from different parts of the country. Um, you know, I've got kids who are Cree, Coast Salish, um, Mohawk, etc. And they've never had a chance to learn what their culture is since day one or any time they've learned about Indigenous culture. It's, you know, through school and it's talking about the past stuff like residential schools. So how do you find a positive identity that that fits you when all you know is negativity? Right. And another thing, too, is um, it's more likely for for First Nations kids to go to jail than is to complete high school. And that's a terrifying thought. But I tell the kids every day, every day that you're in school attempting to make your life better, you're being that statistic. And I really want my kids to feel empowered and know that there's a lot more out there than just, you know, being this, the stereotypes that people tell us we're supposed to be. Because, you know, being First Nation since like since the day you're born, the odds are already stacked against you, right? We're 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 supposedly lazy and alcoholics and drug dealers, and we just live off of government handouts, and we're we're uneducated. And it's like, no, that's a whole lot of you know BS. Like there is so much diversity in our um, community, and we have some amazing people who are making positive changes. You don't always need a degree to bring positive change, but more of our people are getting educated, they're feeling empowered, and they're being able to give back to the communities. And if I can at least get one kid to feel better about themselves and go and go do something good with their lives, then I think I'm doing my job. And you're breaking a cycle. And mm-hmm. and that's what it's going to take is, is, you know, I think about this quite a bit around... Uh, indigenous communities around um, black communities, particularly those that are living in in real socioeconomic hardship. You know, we have to break the cycle. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, when you look at the statistics around indigenous kids in high school and university, and and at some point we there has to be a, a intervention of sorts where we. And I'm not talking about like sixty scoop bullshit. I'm talking about. Um, someone like you going in and encouraging these kids to stay in school because they don't necessarily have the supports at home. Uh, You know, they need uh, something so that we can ultimately break this cycle and, and uh, change the, the outlook. Well, and we're looking with kids um, from a psychological perspective, your experiences as a kid shape who you are as an adult um, the younger the kid, the easier it is to kind of help correct that. But the older you get, it's almost like you're locked in. It's not impossible, but trying to get your life on a good track, it's harder. Um, I think back to myself, um, you know, I'm 22. I'm, I'm not super old. Um, but within like the last four or five years, I've been able to find so much success because I had people in my corner. Um, you know, like there's a lady named Lorna Andrews, uh, 
who she um, worked at the Indigenous Student Center in um, at my university, or um, Shirley Hartman, the senior academic advisor at University of Fraser Valley. Like these were really powerful women who were in my corner since I started there and really empowered me to, you know, be my best self. And after that, I found so much success. And I think to myself, if we had, if I had had that intervention when I was much younger, like think what I could have been doing right now, Mm -hmm. like how much further along my journey I could have been. And I think about that for those kids, the sooner we can empower them and make them feel like they, they have a purpose in life like I can't even imagine what these kids are going to be able to accomplish at such an early age. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's incredible. You're a, you're a member of the University of Fraser Valley's Senate Indigenization Committee. What uh, what's that about? Tell me about that. So basically, um, what the Senate does is um, we advise the UFE Senate, um, particularly around Indigenous affairs. So whether it's implementation of the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation um, Report or anything that. Um, affects um, Indigenous students um, and staff, etc. at a university level. Um, I've been part of it for two years. I hold one of the student chairs. It's an absolute blast to be able to kind of, you know, sit down with some of the like highest level people at the university and be a part of that conversation of, you know, how do we, you know, integrate Indigenous cultures and values and beliefs and traditions, but how do we also make education accessible for First Nations kids. Like, it's, it's, it's to get out of poverty, you need an education, but in order to get an education, you need money. So it's this vicious cycle where how are you supposed to pull yourself out of poverty when you need to be spending money? And it's just, how do you tackle that? And I think that's something that we're starting to um, look at, not just at like UFE, but I think a lot of universities are starting to realize like, you know, how do we, break that cycle because economics is a huge part of trying to, um, you know, pull yourself out of poverty. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it's, I, I was marveling uh, just recently a guy at a university in the States and I'm totally blanking on the school's name and the name, but it's a, it's a school for African-American men. And uh, he paid off the student loans of all of the graduating class of 2019, yes, $40 million. And the, yeah, I'm blanking on that too, but yeah, I heard that. And the impact that that is going to have long-term is epic. Like it's it's $40 million for him, which of course is a significant amount of money, but the man is a billionaire. Um, but the lives that he is changing and the lives that you're changing, and that I think is a pretty exciting thought that the work you're doing right now in university with the university is going to impact the lives of indigenous people for generations. And I think that is pretty exciting. Well, you, sh- you should be pretty proud. It's pretty impressive. I'm sure your folks are pretty impressed too. Yeah. So what, what advice would you give um, to a young person who is uh, struggling with their own identity, whether it's their sexuality or gender identity or their indigeneity, what's, what's the, the advice that you have for them? I would say, you know, stop worrying what other people's expectations are for you. Focus in on what you expect from yourself. That was something that I really struggled with is I would always think about, 
you know, if I did this, what would, you know, what would somebody so, you know, so-and-so say, what would, what would they think, you know, what happens if I do this? But once I start, started getting out of my own head and said, okay, screw that, how do I make myself better? How do I make myself feel good about my life and my identity? That's where I started to make those small steps. And that's, and that's the thing is you don't have to do these big, huge, like, you know, steps, focus on yourself little by little. If you try and do too much at once, you know, it's kind of like a diet. If you suddenly like, you know, cut carbs out, like go cold Turkey, chances are you're probably not going to last. Like, you know, those changes aren't going to last that long, but if you can take little steps to change um, yourself and make yourself feel more positive about yourself, then you're going to find more success a lot sooner. Um, I just want kids to feel empowered and feel like they have a voice and that, you know, they're not, they don't have to feel like they have to stay silent about who they are. But also if you're going to come out, like, make sure it's safe. Like, make sure you do it on your own terms. Don't let anybody tell you what you need to yeah, do. Yeah, absolutely. If you had the opportunity to speak with that kid from high school who, um, who, who said he didn't, you know, like knowing that taxpayer dollars were going to pay for indigenous students and, you know, from from a historical perspective what would you say to him i would give him a hug to be honest and i would say i'm sorry um you know as much as those words affected me um it 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 came from a place of not knowing any better like you know what i mean like he 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 never had the chance to learn like the real history and i don't blame him and that took a lot for me to get there because i wanted to play the blame game and say you know he should have known better blah, blah like how dare he say that but no right Ed, the education system failed him right society failed him and i don't i don't want to blame somebody because i didn't know any better and i would sit down with him and be like hey let's learn the real history Let's do this together. That's uh, that's pretty deep for a person of 22 years. That's pretty impressive. So we'd like to wrap up all of our conversations with the same three questions. I call them the light and fluffy, but it's just an opportunity to get to know you a little better. So first off, who are your heroes or heroines? Oh, I would definitely say like the absolute heroine of my life right now is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez <laughs> or AOC for sure. Yes. Uh, I know I'm like super West Coast, super Canadian, but if I had the chance to at least like, you know, get in, like write an email and being like, oh my goodness, you're such an inspiration. Like if I got that chance, I would take it. Um, for somebody at her age to, you know, be be 29 be a bartender and take down one of the most powerful democrats in the country and you know not be afraid to speak her mind like that to me is so empowering and i and i don't care about the fact that she's american that i'm canadian and our politics are different the fact that she was able to accomplish that and she's you know trying to bring about change like positive real like real positive change not that like tokenism one off like she's really trying to push for the rights of people who don't traditionally get those rights. And that to me is so admirable. And I absolutely have like a huge amount of respect for someone like her. Yeah. She is, uh, she's kicking ass and taking names. 
Yeah. Very impressive young woman. I definitely aspire to be someone like her. Yeah. What are your biggest pet peeves? Okay. So I got, I definitely got two. Oh, good. You're prepared. Um, I like it. (laughs) I was very prepared. So my first one is I, absolutely hate it when non-first nations people call us indians it's like oh, oh my god we're, we're like we're not from india like you know that came from like christopher columbus we're all starting to learn that he was a you know an idiot but like i'm not from india like and i've had conversations with um exchange students from india and they're like why do they call you indians i'm like honestly i don't know <laughs> um my other pet peeve is i absolutely cannot stand when people chew with their mouth open it like sets me into overdrive you are not the first like, person to say that on this podcast <laughs> like please keep your mouth shut when you eat yes. like did your mama not raise you right like it just oh i can't i don't want to <laughs> see your food i don't want to see inside. no i don't no. Wanna, I, I don't want to see it i don't want to hear it i just want to oh i can't absolutely totally that one that that's at the top of my list too my list is very long though so it's you know it's hard to get on there what is your happiest and or guiltiest pleasure I think it, it's no longer a guilty pleasure because I've just fully accepted it. But when I first came out, I was one of those kids where I was like, I'm not going to watch RuPaul's Drag Race. That's such a stereotype. I'm not into that. I would never do that. And I've watched every season multiple times. I got my mom watching it. My mom will like text me. She's like, are you coming home tonight? Like, I want to watch the episode with you. Or, you know, if six o'clock rolls around for um, on our time and I'm not, ready to watch the show she'd be like i'm gonna watch it <gasps> i'm like i don't think so. no like i'm the one that introduced you to that um so it's not even a guilty pleasure to me anymore because i've just like i've i've accepted good. <laughs> my faith the first step is acceptance yeah. right like it's just admitting yeah exactly it is that show gives me life i can't even function without it i we talked exactly. about the it's, office it's, yeah yeah <laughs> it's one of those things where anytime i like um, have an opportunity to show it to somebody i like drag them by the arm like you need to sit down you need to shut up and just watch this because it's so hard to like wanting like especially like yesterday like um you know a couple of my students watch it and i would go like oh my god did you watch did you watch the show they're like no i didn't i'm like oh like i have so much to say (laughs) and like you need to like like, okay do you have a spare today like i'll like i'll we'll watch the episode together like you know (laughs) bitch class it'll Um, be fine yeah, well, you know, unless, of course, like, my boss is here, then, right. then I totally no. do not say that. <laughs> it's a good, uh, that's a good guilty pleasure. I totally appreciate that one. Well, listen, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. It, you are uh, incredibly inspiring. The work you're doing is is really impressive, and uh, you should be very proud of what you're doing and the impact that you're having on your society. So thank you so much for sharing your story with us. It's incredibly inspiring to see someone so young accomplish so much and be motivated to take on the world. All too often we write off young people as unmotivated, but it simply isn't the case. People like Michael Chutzkoff inspire many, myself included. That's all for today's episode of Talking to Canadians. Thanks for listening, and thank you to my guest Michael Chutzkoff for sharing his story. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast through your favorite podcatcher so you never miss an episode. Connect with me through social media. I'm at DiversityDudeMB. And don't forget to stay up to date with everything CCDI is up to by visiting our website at ccdi.ca. Thanks again, and I'll be talking with you again soon, Canada.